Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Timothy P. Carney, commentary editor at the Washington Examiner and visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His new book is Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Tim. Hey, good to be here. Donald Trump's inauguration speech has come to be known as the American Carnage speech. And it was a little bit shocking when I watched it, given how much he described what's going on in this country as something akin to carnage. But you argue that in some places in America, he's kind of correct about that. That's right. Um, and we look at numbers about uh, deaths of despair. We look at numbers of men dropping out of the labor force. We look at numbers about a lot of economic immobility. While mobility is the same Nationwide, as it generally has been, there are many places where it's not true. And I argue that there's an underlying cause to all of those and to Donald Trump winning. And that underlying cause is the collapse of local communities, specifically institutions of civil society that bring people together, that give you a sense of purpose, that give you a, a sort of your own private safety net. All of those things, that's the key factor. Trump wouldn't say it as much. He probably wouldn't perceive it. The, his critics – who said there's not such a problem out there, also don't perceive it. But I, I think I make the case pretty clearly in the book that this is what the problem is, the problem of alienation. To give some context to that, the two terms you mentioned, deaths of despair and then um, economic mobility. Can you just tell us what those yeah. are? So and what the differences them. are in some yeah. of these places. So economic mobility, there, there's two main measures of economic mobility. Relative mobility, how much are people switching quintiles with other people? And absolute mobility, how much, how likely is it that you're going to make more money than your mother and father did? And there's been a big debate about that. And one thing that some scholars have on, uh, on the ride, libertarian scholar Scott Winship particularly have pointed out is that by proper measures, um, there really isn't a downward shift. People, Americans are just as mobile as they used to. There was a follow or a, a, there's been a great study in the last few years, a series of studies by Raj Chetty, a researcher associated with Stanford and Harvard, saying, well, we still, we're not the land of opportunity anymore, but we have many lands of opportunity. If you live in Salt Lake City and you're in the bottom quintile, there's a 10% chance that you're going to hit the top quintile. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's almost, you know, it's, it's getting close to a lot of mobility there. But if you live in the Charlotte metropolitan area, the odds of you going from the bottom to the top are 4%. So in other words, to tell the story about economic mobility in the country, you have to look at a very local level. So that's the first clue that place matters and that there's something local about this problem. Deaths of despair is another one that's gotten a lot of attention in some incredible uh, incredible studies. There you have um, uh, you had studies showing that suicides, alcohol poisoning, and drug overdoses have all seen major upticks, particularly among the white working class. And this has driven an actual slight reversal in the steady climb in life expectancy of Americans and that that reversal is mostly happening among men and in these places where these sort of, again, suicides, uh, alcohol-related deaths and drug-related deaths are on the rise. Now, you, you mentioned two metro areas. You said Salt Lake City and, and Charlotte. And sometimes we hear that the urban-rural divide is what really is going on. Mm -hmm. and you look at the maps and you see the little islands of blue and it seems to be the case. But it's not just that. No. You point out some some small towns 
have extremely thriving civil society institutions and some do not. So it's more than that. Yes, exactly right. I wrote a, a column. One of the things that spurred me to write this book, I wrote a column during the 2016 primaries. I went to this small town in Wisconsin called Oostburg where half of the town reports Dutch ancestry. And so I'm this Irish Catholic from New York. So ancestry, ethnicity really interests me. And when I got there, it seemed like the whole town was all people who were you know, going to vote for Ted Cruz, not because they loved him, but because they weren't going to vote for Donald Trump in the primary. And I had found other towns like this that were also very Dutch and that were in places like Iowa or Western Michigan. And it just intrigued me. But I was lucky to be in Oostburg on a, on a Sunday and saw the people in the pouring into the diner, these families pouring in after the nine o'clock uh, service at the first Christian Reformed Church of Oostburg and then the 915 at the first Presbyterian Church and then the other Christian Reformed Church and then the other – that it was this village of 2000 built mostly around these four churches that fit into the same sort of strain of Christianity, a lot of this Reformed Christianity. And the public schools were very strong. The outcomes they had measured by uh, you know sociologists were all very strong. And I wrote this piece about how in America's strong small towns, Trump's dour tone doesn't have the appeal. And this is at the primary stages. This is in the yeah. primary stages. In the general, they would vote Republican. It was a slight downtick compared to Romney. But when I wrote the in, in uh, small, strong small towns, Trump doesn't have this appeal. The first response I got on Twitter after my colleague Byron York posted it was somebody saying, strong small towns, where are those? There are none left. And that's when I realized that so much of rural America where you were seeing these bad numbers and this Trump support in the primaries compared to Cruz, Rubio, Kasich, Bush, in so many of those places, they didn't have the strong religious institutions. So in my my argument that the main difference between the places in rural America or middle America that have good outcomes and the places that don't is the places that have good outcomes have strong religious communities. What's the the line, the direction of causation here? Like do these – do people – Deaths from despair and low economic mobility and all that follow the collapse of churches or is it that these institutions of civil society tend to disappear when there's – everyone is hooked on drugs or alcoholic and unemployed? I think the – one of the phrases that appears the most in my book is the causality appears to go both ways and – but I, I will – I can – argue both of them, I think, with uh, with the numbers and with sort of logic in my own experience, that community collapse uh, is the result and that church collapse and community collapse are the result of bad economics and bad culture issues is, is clear. The, a lot of times the closing factory is the first domino that leads to those other things. Um, I, I usually argue that the the closing institutions is the second domino and then the deaths of despair and the other personal level outcomes is the third. But for instance, I know people in the Pittsburgh area who when their Catholic parish closed, they simply stopped going to mass at age 70. So they've been to mass every single Sunday. It's part of Catholic teaching. You have to go. It's not optional. It's actually a uh, – it's considered a mortal sin if you skip just because you don't want to go or are lazy or busy. And they stopped going because their own parish, that was the church to them, the very local thing. And that 
was a uh, that led to that leads to bad outcomes, but also follows from bad outcomes. There is a study in the book about Catholic parishes that shut down for what the the researchers thought were sort of exogenous reasons. Something happens. The building is destroyed by a tornado. Um, you know, the the priest they had lined up to be the pastor there suddenly died, and they didn't have another one. So they they tried to find the parishes that were shut down, not because the community was already collapsing, but by some exogenous thing. Now, there's we need to get this replicated, et cetera. But they found that in those sort of ones that were shut down by an external shock, that there were lots of bad outcomes in the neighborhood, more graffiti, more uh, less social trust, more uh, signs of alcohol abuse and that sort of thing. So I think the causality goes both ways. But I think the, the key here is uh, it's not hard to see how strong institutions of civil society would create good outcomes. It provides the modeling. It provides the personal safety net. The, the studies that show, oh, so many people don't couldn't have somebody who could, if they owe $2,000, what would they have to do? In a parish or in a strong uh, alumni association or in a professional association or at a strong workplace or at any of these institutions, you're just more likely to be able to have friends who are like, hey, man, we pieced together this money to get you through the month. And, and that avoids the bottoming out. So to me, it's undeniable from a, uh, an empirical sense that strong institutions prevent bad outcomes. But we go to places like San Francisco or Seattle or Denver. We'll, we'll go with San Francisco, which has not at least recently been too much of a church-going town. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem to be doing okay. It, it, and yep. Seattle seems to be doing okay. I'm not sure what the percentage of people who go to churches in those towns are, but uh, it's probably less than many of the middle American places. So it's not just churches. But it? but it's two classes, right? It's the elites and it's the churchgoers. I, I say that for the elites, for and I use that term fairly broadly, college-educated people. Are we all elites? Yes, the, we're okay. all elites. Okay. College-educated right. people, so still a minority of adults in America. Um, and if you've read Coming Apart, if you've read any sociological data, you know that they we increasingly cluster, we increasingly marry like, we increasingly have good outcomes and get surrounded only by people who graduated from college, that they're a minority in the country, but that probably most of the people listening to this right now not only graduated from college, but a vast majority of their friends graduated from college shows how those bubbles work. Those bubbles have good outcomes. This is one of my main lessons for my conservative friends in this book. The the, the liberal elites are practicing what we conservatives are preaching. And then outside of the elite, though, that's where I argue that church is proving even if not necessary, it's proving the number one institution that's helping provide the good outcomes. There are other possible exceptions and we can talk about it later, but that the two parts of America that are getting lower deaths of despair, that didn't vote for Trump in the Republican primary and that are getting uh, just other good outcomes are the elite circles and the strong religious communities. I use the example of uh, the village of Chevy Chase and the village of Oostburg, both villages of 2000, very different on economic and education, very similar on outcomes and their vote in the Republican primary. This decline in church attendance, so there's there's the instances where there's the exogenous that you mentioned, mm-hmm. like tornado hits the church, yeah. um, or just I guess if the town economy collapses to a certain point that they can't financially support it. But we've also got just declining religiosity in general, yeah. like young people um, and and so that seems like – so they're – those young people are turning away from the church 
in part just because they don't believe the metaphysical claims that the yep. church makes. Um, and so is that – it seems like you, it'd be hard to say, OK, well, you got to come back just because the outcomes are good. No, so. it, <laughs> you're right. It, it would be hard and I'm sure there are um, – Maybe somebody will come up with a a, a church, the church uh, of rock church. and roll. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to say the the church of uh, stable marriages and not dying of opioid overdoses. Okay, well, yeah, um, that's but probably that, not the church. That's, that's not, not the church of rock and roll. If yeah. it's not dedicated to a common higher cause, it it, it won't have those uh, good outcomes. But the the secular institutions that replace them tend to also be family oriented. Um, I think of Park Slope Public Schools. And preschools, that these are secular institutions that aren't just transactional. These are relational. People belong to these things. People go to them. They serve them. And, and again, not just volunteer at them, but actually serve these institutions because they care about their children and then they grow to care about the, the neighborhood kids and that sort of thing. So a, a strong public school or something like that or private school that's secular with real community buy-in, that's going to be the main institution of uh, of civil society for uh, for secular elites. But if you look at secular middle class and working class, there's not a lot of evidence that they're plugging into something of uh, with with a higher shared higher purpose, and that and that leads them towards good outcomes. And so it would be an interesting question about you know more of them may belong to you know play community oriented video games more of them may belong to online forums and that sort of thing this is not something that there's data on yet but that'll be very interesting to see to what extent in in what ways can uh virtual community replace real community and my suspicion right now is that it, it's incredibly incomplete the the replacement so why does so i live i live in a neighborhood in Alexandria, where our center of community is the public elementary school. Yep. Like it's it's down the street from us, and it's astonishing how much the community organizes around it, and how everyone knows everybody through it. Um, and so that seems so that seems to be what you're describing there. But but lower income areas also have public schools. So why aren't they using public schools in the way that like my upper middle class community is? That's right. So I, I can answer that on two levels. First, what makes a good public school a good public school? I, I refer to a couple studies in here about the amount of money spent per student not mattering. I mean, you guys know these numbers very well. It's not where the most money is spent. It's where you have the most involved parents who share a common mission and a common idea of what an education is going to be. And that in the working class places, you have a lot more single moms. The retreat from marriage is incredibly focused in people who graduated from high school and didn't graduate from college. In working class places, you have a lot more people with less flexible work schedules that you know a huge portion of this country gets told about five days out what hours are going to be working, what shifts if you're working at a at a at a restaurant or something like that, or you just don't have the flexibility that I do. I mean, I'm I ducked out of my office to come tape a podcast with you. You can't do that in every job. That's a very white collar thing. Uh women who then get married, have children and then work part time, that's actually a very white collar elite sort of arrangement. And so all the the elements that you need, uh two parents more flexible work schedules, somebody able to work part-time, just those all add to the 
uh, in increase involvement. And then you also look at um, high immigrant communities where there's multiple languages spoken and where even if the kids are all learning in English, the people back home, the parents back home might not speak English. That obviously adds a barrier to uh, community because it adds a barrier to communication. So there, there's all sorts of reasons why parents won't be able to be as involved in the working class. And I argue in Alienated America that the involved parents is almost the definition of good public school. Now, you brought up immigration, which you touch on in the book in different ways. And you say, yes, it's there are definitely racists and xenophobes going on yeah. here. But you just touched on the fact that if you if you perceive your community as lacking connections um, and you perceive a bunch of immigrants come in that don't speak the language, that could be part of it. But isn't that just another form of xenophobia and racism well, of its own sort? I, I think I think everybody's a little bit racist and everybody's <laughs> a little bit bigoted. Um, and that one thing we can try to do as people who comment on public policy and culture is rather than point to all the people who are more racist than us and call them names is to help them understand, help understand why they're that way and help them have less racism and xenophobia. And I would say that it, so I tell a story of myself and my neighbor, uh, Mr. Patel. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to open the book right now and oh, read it. Please. I, um, so I live in Silver Spring. My next door neighbor, Mr. Patel is from India. And so I went up to him one day and I said, Mr. Patel, I would like to have you over for a drink. And he said, no, he doesn't drink alcohol for religious reasons. So I, that's admirable, I write in the book, but it creates a barrier to our bonding. Coffee? Nope. Tea? Nope. Herbal tea? Sorry. So for months, I was frustrated. Finally, I had to approach him with an awkwardly direct question. Mr. Patel, I would like to have you over for a drink, but what liquids do you actually consume? I've got some lime LaCroix. No dice. He said the wastes of putting water in cans and bottles violated his religious obligation to care for creation. Finally, he suggested, quote, water with some lemon or lime in it. So I sent my kids off to the grocery store to pick up a lemon and a lime. I filled a couple of big pitchers with water, and after my kids went to bed, Mr. Patel and I finally got to know each other over many glasses of gently citrified water. This shows it wasn't impossible to bridge cultural gaps, but that it takes a lot of effort and has a lot of potential pitfalls. It's reasonable to infer then that cultural differences in a community tend to weaken community bonds. If I serve pork hot dogs at a cookout, will my Muslim neighbors even want to be there? If I grill cheeseburgers, does that appeal to any of my non-American neighbors? And so that's a story. And some of you will know the social science data that Robert Putnam, after Bowling Alone, said – it's hard to find diverse communities with a lot of social cohesion and racial diversity seems to correlate inversely with social trust. And so we could just say, oh, this for, is – For maybe a generation or so. Does that matter too? Yeah. So one of the points I make is that one of the – is that might just be transition costs, so to speak. Um, when people A, learn the language a generation later and B – Norms are constantly changing. So in the cultural norms of the community and the cultural norms of the new entrants, they sort of blend together into new norms or compatible norms or the same norms. But that for a while, people playing late night music, people uh, – maybe I use the, <laughs> the story in here from Spike Lee talking about gentrification. He says, we've always sat on our front porch loudly talking with our friends. We're not starting fights, but we're, you know, we're sitting on our front porch smoking – this is the way we've done it for decades. And you come in 
and complained. And complained. But this is we've we've got a way of doing things. You can't just come in. You gotta come with respect. And that's the same exact logic as this. So this is but, one way that I would want to look at it is people that that it can form a barrier to strong community when the norms are very different. But it seems that we have this this data which has been talked about a lot that the more immigrants that live near people in these areas, the more that they like immigrants, mm -hmm. right? So they have the more familiarity they have with them, the more they like immigrants. And that seems to go against possibly some of those things you just said. Well, I will say when it comes to the Trump vote. On the Trump vote in the, particular, the, yes. This one study said that if you – and this is fraught with all sorts of complications. But if you control for educational attainment and income, then Trump did better in the places with more – with more immigrants. In other words, if you say, okay, rich places are going to A, have more immigrants because there's more jobs and B, are going to be less interested in Trump and say among all the wealthy, highly educated places, how much does immigration affect Trump? Again, more immigrants meant more Trump among those places and then among the poor places, how much does more immigration affect Trump? So again, it's one study. It could be fraught with peril but I would say there's some evidence that people – who felt that their their communities were being rapidly changed were more likely to vote for Trump. And sure enough, one of the best predictors was people who said, I feel like a stranger in my own land. Now, some of that is just people upset about things changing in ways that you and I will count as progress. But that – and that became the standard Hillary Clinton narrative, right? She said, I lost the backwards places. But I think that that is way too dismissive. I think often there are changes – that make you feel like a stranger because you've lost connection to other people and they're, they're changes that aren't necessarily progress. What if you used to participate in the Memorial Day parade and that disappeared because it was run by the Boy Scout troop and the Boy Scout shut down in part because there weren't enough uh, parents who could uh, be a scoutmaster? That's probably a negative development in your community and it makes you feel like a stranger in your own land. So how much of this, I guess – the role that the economics plays. So the story about the public school not becoming the center of community <clears throat> was a large portion of that was economics in, yes. in terms of people just don't have the flexibility to work different hours to do things. They don't make enough so that one parent can work part time or stay at home and so on. Um, and and a lot of these other things like the churches shutting down in these small towns mm -hmm. are driven by economics. Um, so how much of this is simply – there are there were ways of living in America in the mid twentieth century, small towns where people had high school diplomas, if that right, and but were able to they were economically viable, but the economy has shifted in ways that aren't you know we can't mm -hmm. shift it back um, that those kinds of communities are simply not economically viable anymore, um, and so that the solution is not building churches in those communities, but it's just people moving out of them. So I think we should get to the question of people moving in a sec because that's one that I, I remain fairly agnostic on throughout the book and I think it's – a because I, I think it deserves its own book. But yes, I think the factory closing is often the first domino. But compare – one thing I do in the book is I compare Pittsburgh to Fayette County, Pennsylvania. Fayette County is south of Pittsburgh. And they both were devastated by the shutting down of the steel mill, the steel, the coal industries, devastation. Pittsburgh is doing very well now. 
Fayette County is not. Hillary Clinton would tell you it's because of Pittsburgh is full of a bunch of progressive people who uh, are just happier with gays and women than Hispanics and blacks and Fayette County is full of a bunch of you know backwards deplorables. I would say, no, Pittsburgh was full of, was planted thick with institutions and communities that acted as a support structure that limited how far people fell. So you've got neighborhoods that are Italian neighborhoods built around a Catholic parish, a Jewish neighborhood built around a synagogue. You've got the industrialists but from- Also like Kiwanis clubs and yes, all those old kind Kiwanis of, clubs and all those things. It's and not just churches. Industrialists from 120 years ago planting uh, concert halls, museums, parks, all these institutions that serve, have this incredible uplifting effect or- upward pressure that limits the collapse of these things. So people are still connected. There are universities there, not just to act as employers, but also, again, to act as hubs of civil society. Fayette County had very few of them. They had like a Protestant church and a Catholic church, one diner and three bars and that in, in some of these towns. And so that those thinner communities, it's much easier for a little shock to break through destroy enough of the institutions that enough people are left alienated. In Pittsburgh, there's more of these things, more of these clubs, partly because of population density, partly because just the shape of the city. It's probably stronger than a lot in that way. And so then it survives on those long enough for the economic upswing to lift it up to the point that now it's a perfectly healthy economic city bordering on a rural community that is, is not healthy at all. When you discuss why, so we've been talking about diagnosing the problem here, but you discuss why and you talk about centralization and some of the governmental aspects of this. And in some places with this sort of government is the thing, the term for the thing that we all do together, <laughs> uh, you point out that in, in many ways for some on the progressive side, I won't say everyone, but the the point of the government doing some of these programs, welfare programs, even public schools and different things that they call public, which you yeah. point out is that they use a, a different meaning of that word, is to displace civil society. That's right. I quote Bernie Sanders sort of grumpily speaking at a, at a charity benefit saying, I don't believe in charity. And everybody there is shocked and the New York Times paraphrased him as quoting, no, the government's supposed to take care of these things. And this is, and if you've lived in DC for a while, you know progressives who have some sort of attitude like that, that there's something demeaning of the idea that we should be turning to a soup kitchen or to a united way or something like that for basic human needs that they would say social justice demands that this be provided. And so the state is the instrument to provide it. And that when Barney Frank, who's always quoted by Democrats as saying, government is a name for the things we do together, I just think, Every week, I do thousands of things together with my colleagues, my friends, my co-parishioners, the other kids who send – I carpool and that's not a government thing. We do so much stuff together and then I, I point to the people who sort of crack down on charities, whether it's Bloomberg saying you can't give out free leftover bagels on uh, – Because they don't have the salt content they listed, don't have right? the salt content stamped on them <laughs> um, and that all of these things uh, that are – that are centralization, there is, as you're saying, I don't think among all of them, but along a lot of people, you know, they think it's a crime if it's having to be picked up by institutions of civil society. So what I argue is one of the advantages of the federal government in the safety net is that it's able to be countercyclical. When there's a depression, churches have less money, soup kitchens have less money. When there's a depression, the government can actually borrow it less and, and spend this money and print its own money. 
So maybe the role of the federal government is to be a safety net for safety nets. And as much as possible, aid needs to be administered on a, a human level because it does, and I cite multiple studies in there, there is crowding out. How much is is a question of debate. But when government spends more, it crowds out charitable spending. And one of the huge costs of this, this is one of the things I really try to drive home. If you care about the working class and the poor, spending $10 to and crowding out $3 sounds like a good deal. But spending $10 and at the same time killing a lot of the institutions that people rely on for access to the good life, that might not be worth it. Or maybe figure out how to spend that $10 in such a way that doesn't crowd out, that doesn't kill these institutions. So one of the objections to that that I have heard from progressives who make the argument that we ought to centralize this stuff. So we ought to centralize, say, charity as opposed to it being something that's done through the community or the soup kitchen or the mm -hmm. church is that it it respects the dignity of the individual more that like if I'm getting money from the government, then I'm, I get the money from the government and nobody kind of knows that I am poor. Nobody knows that I'm on the dole. I'm just like I'm everybody else. But But there's like a – demeaning level yeah to for me to go to specifically to you and to, and not just to you as like another person but to you as another person in my community who I interact with or see frequently and say I need your help and so we're like elevating these people by taking that off the table I I understand that and I I I sympathize with that but I think it's a, a very very poor understanding a poor idea of human nature and the the fact that everybody is in need, almost everybody's in need at some point in their life. The fact that we are elevated by helping other people are things that I believe. And I don't think these are simply Christian ideas. I know that they they run around that that circle a lot, but I think that they're they're very uh, true ideas. And the fact that government is often incredibly <laughs> demeaning. I mean, if you go to the Mormon. Uh, the the bishop's warehouse at the Mormon, uh, uh, you know that they they run out of their church. Nobody's making you pee in a cup to to get the food to feed your family. Um, there may be more questions about uh, what you have in your in your cupboard at home, but there's not intense paperwork you need to fill out. The one of the stories I tell at the end of my book is about a, a, a sort of weekly. Barbecue we do on Fridays around T-ball in my parish and sort of the that it's a pay what you can thing. And it's the the money is sort of off to the side and usually run by some 10-year-old kid who doesn't know anything. And so some people are throwing in a five, some people are for for a whole family. Um, some people are throwing in a 20 just for themselves because they see what's going on. Some people might not be throwing in anything at all. That I think is the most possible sort of uplifting thing is that any any uh, family in our parish or living within walking or driving distance of our t-ball field can come and get a meal. Not a great one. You know, it's a cheeseburger and chips, but can come and get a meal and water and and all that stuff for uh, the, the cost of showing up and, and that's it. And so I do think that the human level institutions have a much greater ability to do things with love. On the other hand, depending on your personality, maybe you think somebody you know Doing something with love is incredibly embarrassing and demeaning and that's sort of the progressive mindset that you come – I don't think that that mindset should be written into public policy is what I would say. I think the mindset that we all have an obligation to care for our uh, our neighbors and our fellow man and, um, and that the reminder that everybody's in need, 
I think that has just as much claim to drive public policy as the progressives, what I think is an antisocial mindset. You also cite the sexual revolution. Yes. Uh, just to get – so you, we could check all the conservative uh, boxes in this. So we got death for the family, sexual revolution. Can we get good background churches, music yeah, in the sexual yeah, revolution yeah, section yeah. of this podcast? Uh, of course, yeah. But, but – and again, you also point out that there are people on the left who agree with this. And, and I think we recently had a, a minor scandal at some university where a woman wrote a paper that said uh, graduate high school, get married and have kids in that order. And that's a good way to succeed. And everyone sort of freaked out. Yeah. And she wasn't a conservative at all. But no, that that the the fact is that in general, the good outcomes what what gets called the success sequence, and a lot of people on the left hate this, but that graduating high school and if and maybe college, but finish school, get a job, get married, have kids, and then I say get involved in your kid's life, and then stay involved in your community. That that really is statistically correlated with good outcomes for lots of reasons that don't involve. You know, reading Catholic encyclicals or, or ascribing to the teachings of the catechism. <laughs> um, but I would argue that also family breakdown uh, often causes the growth of government because families and then families coming together into a community, that civil society and that family, that provides people with many of their human needs and most of them. And that in play, when we looked at uh, the, the crisis of the inner cities starting in the 1960s, where we realized that family breakdown was a huge part of it, in part because there was deliberate efforts to bust up the institutions of civil society that inner city black families required, uh, depended on and government programs that incentivized family breakup, family breakdown, that then more government stepped in uh, to either out of necessity or, or, or what. And so my sort of conservative appeal – to uh, libertarians, and I still consider myself a libertarian and a conservative, is to say the the check on the growth of the state is the growth of civil society that then props up families and then also people who aren't and have no interest in being in families will also be better off in less need of the state if they have around them a strong community. But wasn't it going to be inevitable some amount of breakup of the family that would be considered good? In the sense that for women's liberation in mm -hmm. general, women's earning potential going up, freeze of women's choices, they're no longer, you know, highest, best use, I'm putting this in quotes, I'm not sorry, is as a mother, that they can become a lawyer and maybe a mother too, but they can do that too. That it would you'd, you would expect marriage rates to go down and that would be good. It can't just be the case that higher marriage rates are always better. No, correct. There's 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 a mean that's that's good and that uh, I think chapter three is titled Progress at a Price and it talks a lot about uh, liberation of women and just people uh, – of different races, different lifestyles, being able to more fully live their lives. But again, just look at the numbers. A small portion of the uh, – chapter five is dedicated to the retreat from marriage. A small portion of that is due to a postponement of marriage among the college educated. So the actual number of women who ever get married in their life is not – going down in the last 10, 15 years among the college educated. It's down compared to 1962, which you might say was was too, uh, too restricted, too constraining. But compared to the 1990s, that's flat. Compared to the 1990s, what's falling is the rate of blue-collar women, working-class women, women who didn't finish college, of them either getting married or staying married. 
What's on the uptick is them raising children out of wedlock. And we know that these that a, a blue-collar woman raising a child out of wedlock with a below-median income is not correlated with good outcomes in life. So the retreat from marriage generally is a bad thing from a secular perspective. But the retreat from marriage as elites see it is um, imagining a, a woman finishing college, finishing her graduate degree, doing eight years of work, and then finally deciding to get married when she can afford the daycare. That's a that's not the the heart of the retreat from marriage. So we've spent most of the last hour talking about this problem. And so we've got these small communities throughout America that have collapsed in despair, don't have the civil institutions. Um it's it's a bad picture for quite a lot of Americans. But where we are today, what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. like what can we do going forward? And I guess there's two there's two prongs to that question. One is what can we do from a policy direction to make things better? And then what can we do from an individual private yes. citizen civil society direction? That's right. So uh, fitting for a libertarian institution, most of my federal uh, prescriptions are stop doing this bad thing. And one is stop – is. Stop crowding civil society institutions of civil society out. Um, I think that the for one, chasing churches out of the public square is a mistake. For two, um, try to set up uh, welfare programs in such a way that doesn't displace uh, these institutions. Now that's tricky because then you've got government money thrown through institutions that you know uh, are might be of a specific faith sect or, or that sort of thing. So I'm not I'm not saying that's easy, but to structure federal policy around not driving those out. A little thing in the book, um, the tax preference for buying a house and taking out a mortgage, uh, a lot of studies have shown that that's increased home size and that sort of thing. Well, that might be a social good, but there's a social cost. So why, why have a tax subsidy? Let the market decide whether people want big houses rather than the government supporting that. On the local policy level, again, if we want a secular institution that's going to be local and on a human level, strong public schools with local control is a huge part of it. Where I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, there's no local control over the schools. And so the only schools that have any local influence are the ones where the parents have so much money that they just have a giant pile of cash outside of what the school is getting to that they can control that giant pile of cash. But uh, there's lots of places in New England and New York where the town, the village, the neighborhood actually controls the school and that that can be a strong institution. So returning to uh, something like that. But ultimately, it is going to be people getting uh, – just immersing themselves in the institutions around them and trying to think what is the the greater – higher good that we can sort of jointly be aiming for and that, uh, you know, I don't believe in big central solutions to a lot of these problems. So I, the last chapters of all three of my books now have ended up being a little bit depressing. Um, but this one, uh, that's, that's what I would say is that ultimately it's going to come down to people realizing, especially elites realizing, wait a second, strong institutions has been a really important part of my life. I'm going to dedicate myself to it. But here I'm going to quote Pope Francis. He talks about inclusion of the poor. So not just helping. You can't just cut a check to them. So including people who are currently alienated, alienated somehow is an incredibly hard challenge. That's one of the things with the sort of the T-ball barbecue my hope and dream is, is to include people who are currently without 
a, a level of support. That that it's always going to be on an individual level that the good uh, the good outcomes are going to be achieved after we get the government to stop having the policies that get in the way of our ability to do good. Because we don't do the good as individuals so much as we do it as people freely associating with groups and then acting through those groups. So what about um, the moving ah, question? Because yes. so we America is a country that draws immigrants from all over the world who are people who decided that they were going to take an enormous step, uproot their lives, cross much bigger cultural divides than that between Manhattan and central Ohio um, and to make a better life for themselves. Yep. And so shouldn't we just at some point expect the people in these bad areas to kind of act like immigrants? Well, I can go even further that um, – I'll all of us are here because our ancestors, um, all of us in this room being white people are here because yes. our ancestors <laughs> decided to get on a boat and come over here. And that's uh, – I think half of the story of the American dream is that frontier mindset. I think the other half of the American story, the American dream, if you read your Tocqueville, is people immersing themselves and planting themselves and dedicating to themselves to the little platoon. So we have this sort of almost self-contradictory uh, story going on here. So I, I think sometimes some of my friends, whether it's Kevin Williamson or Arthur Brooks at AEI, uh, think about the frontier story and not enough about the, the Tocqueville or you can call it the Norman Rockwell or whatever, the dedication to the local. But if you're in a place that's broken, the the – Vicious circles can make it very hard to make something grow there. The the soil, so to speak, has become very infertile. So I do think you have to have moving, but the moving to something better is part of the problem because you've had so much of this sorting. Anybody in Newton, Iowa who can get out will get out. If that weren't true, Newton, Iowa would still be fine. So it's 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 a horrible catch twenty two. But I would say moving has to be part of it. But ideally, it's not moving like you know the John Wayne character in a movie who goes to a town just long enough to set it straight and then goes on. But it's looking for a new place to put down roots. I think roots are incredibly important. It's very easy today, especially for young people in the twenty first century, to not be seeking to plant roots, but just to be transactional. We have to get beyond that to get good results for people. You have to develop a relation. So that's that's sort of my answer answer to the moving thing is, yes, if you don't think that you can make something happen where you are or you don't think you're going to be able to survive where you are, get up and go, but go in search of the soil in which to plant your roots. But as I read the book, I because I've known you for a long time, so I also kind of read it as a um, uh, why Tim Carney led his life in the right way style <laughs> book, uh, but I mean a good way because it was, again, the, the, the data is there. But uh, uh, if I'm not going to be uh, Catholic or religious, which I'm, I'm an atheist, so it's, it's going to be. It's pretty. You awkward. should still have six kids if that's <laughs> okay. What you're well, I do, ask. okay, I knew you were going to say that, but <laughs> no, but okay. So what do what do you say? Because I do think that even yeah. outside of the specific recommendations about going to church or something like that, but if you're somebody living in San Francisco and you and your polyamorous collective go to Burning Man uh, <laughs> every year and you play in like a EDM band where you have like big raves and warehouses and uh, all, and all these kind of – what would you give advice to, to those people who are probably not going to come along on your sort of spiritual mm -hmm. factors uh, but, but how should they take this book? So that you're – you should be sacrificing and giving yourself – for two people through 
institution. So again, a band is a, a perfect example of some of of that sort of thing. I don't know. I've thought a lot about whether Burning Man or these once a year things count because they, you know, well, you should, Burning Man is more than it, it, it extends yeah. throughout the whole year. Yeah. You have little burning things within within areas. So. But so and so that's the sort of thing that um, if it's integrated with your your life, then it can be this sort of thing. And A, try to include people who need uh, – who are currently alienated um, and B, always be thinking – making sure that your institution is dedicated to a good and not to the preservation of itself. That's one of the criticisms. I, I spend a little bit of time on the book on how institutions sometimes become dedicated to the protection of themselves. And my own church is a great example of one that totally undermined its own purpose by trying to protect its reputation and itself. So guard that. Um, but then B, it's easy to think of yourself as an individual who's engaged with another person or organization so long as you get a benefit from it. That's sort of the logical, reasonable way to put about it, to think about it. And you think about that's as long as you're going to keep your you know, airline loyalty program is as long as it's the best one to keep or your credit card and you're going to cut it off right before the annual due comes. Right. You, you can't live life that way. You have to uh, again, planting roots means you're you're uh, sticking in there, even if you might want to quickly pull up. You have to be relational and not just transactional. And if you already belong to a band and you're playing in the same gig every week, you already sort of buy into that. And so that would be uh, my my main advice in there. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.